For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. Father, we're, we're expecting you to do something wonderful today because you're wonderful and we've, we're, we're gathering together in your name. And I'm so grateful, Lord, that you chose to meet with us today. I can't help but think where we'd be without you, Lord, in a world that just seems to be headed so deeply in the wrong direction. We, we look to you. We look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Our trust is in you and in you alone. I do pray your blessing over our time together this morning. Bless your word to our hearts, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, there certainly is a, uh, you know, from the time that Pastor Ange prayed and shared some scripture verses, um, a, a very great need for us to bring our cares to the Lord. There, there's always a need. And sometimes we don't recognize that need as we ought to recognize that need. But I know that without Jesus, I can do nothing. Amen. Nothing. And, you know, we also sang uh, that one song about uh, lifting our burdens up to the Lord, our troubled hearts. And I woke up with a troubled heart this morning. And, you know, there's a lot of things going on in, in the world and in my life personally. And, you know, I just came to my wife and I said, would you pray for me, please? And she did. And you know what the Lord did? He took this troubled heart and here we are. Gathered in his holy and wonderful name. He's, he answers prayers, you know, and, and Pastor Ann shared out of uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come unto me, come unto me, come unto you. What a wonder, wonderful invitation God gives us. And it's an invitation that stands, and it continues on and on and on every single day, every moment of every day, to be specific. I thank God for that, for the invitation he provides for us to be able to just come to him and know that he hears us. He inclines his ear from heaven. He, he stoops to meet our needs. Isn't that an incredible thing that the God that created the universe, that holds the universe in the span of his hand. You know, I saw in the news last week, just a little bit of an aside, they've, they've come up with um, more galaxies and so forth they've, they've found and they're all spinning in this direction, that direction. But, you know, I, I begin to think God's got all this under control. None of us is surprised to him. Yeah. You know, they say the universe is expanding. It's not expanding. He's able to see more. And God says, it's right here in the span of his hand. He's got us covered, family. He's got us covered. Well, today we're going to continue on in Acts chapter 21. In this morning, studying verses 15 through 22. And Today's message is entitled, The Dilemma in Jerusalem. And you know, we're going to be touching on some things here that we've all experienced in our lives too, certain dilemmas in our life, uh, not so much uh, necessarily about you know, the times we live in, but more specifically, uh, the, the battle that, that, that mankind has over works in the law versus life in the Spirit and in the grace of God. And this is what Paul experienced as he traveled along. You know, he's on his third missionary journey. And he was warned by others that said, avoid going to Jerusalem, as was Paul's plan. 
He was told by God's Holy Spirit, however, what he would expect when he went into the city of Jerusalem, when he would get there. So he was convinced in his heart, and we talked about this last week. There's debate on both sides of the, of the line here. I believe with all my heart that Paul was, was led by God's Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem for the reasons we talked about last week. And he knew that there was trouble brewing for him. It didn't dissuade him at all, did it? No. God said, bonds and afflictions will await you wherever you go. And certainly Jerusalem, the next stop on his trip, last stop on the missionary journey, the third one. So as he would arrive, that would mark the end of his third missionary journey. And let's read verses 15 through 22. We concluded last week with verse 14, the, the will of the Lord be done. So he knew he was in the Lord's will. He said, after those days, we, we took up our carriages, not the kind of carriages that we might expect. They packed their stuff, in other words. They packed their, their belongings and went up to Jerusalem. And if you remember, Jerusalem, it's an elevated city. So whenever someone would go to Jerusalem, it's called up to Jerusalem. So this is where he's headed. There went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea and brought with them one Manasseh of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders that were present. And when he had saluted them or greeted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee, that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come." There is a warning there, isn't there? Paul and the disciples, they arrived in Jerusalem from Caesarea and accompanied by Gentile Christians traveling with him from the churches that he visited along the way. And along with them, there was Luke, of course, Silas and others that were with Paul. And along this trip is a man named Manasseh. And he's a Jew. He was raised in Cyprus. It's likely he came to Christ as Peter preached earlier in Acts chapter 2, about 19 years earlier. Now, the King James Version says he's an old disciple. Well, it's really not speaking of his age, but speaking of an early, excuse me, an early disciple. Again, some 19 years earlier. He's probably a Hellenistic Jew, a Jew raised in the Greek culture. Again, he's from Cyprus. And this is important to note because Manasseh will offer his home to the Apostle Paul and those traveling with him during their stay in Jerusalem. And aside from those mentioned in verse 17, there were many people in Jerusalem, and we're going to see more of this as we proceed through not only Acts 21, but further on too, weren't so excited to see Paul and probably would not have welcomed them into their homes. We see this in verses 21 on, but Manasseh did. And it says a lot about him. It says something to me about him, that how he views the body of Christ. He saw Brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, as a brother in the Lord. 
He had a spirit of love for Paul and for the body of Christ, those traveling with him. He was interested in unity, not interested in division. And he viewed Paul very personally, too, as a a very loving, caring man, Manasseh was. And he knew that Paul was a very loving, truthful, caring man. They wanted nothing more than to bring the gospel to the lost. Keep in mind, at this time in Jerusalem, this time of the year, finding a place in that city was very, very difficult. For Paul would travel there. He wanted to go in order to be there during the Feast of Pentecost. One of the three great feasts where all Jewish males from all over the world would come. So Jerusalem's a very, very crowded city. Manasseh is gracious. He opened up his home to Paul and to those that were with him. You know, the gift of hospitality, isn't it a wonderful thing? What a beautiful gift that is. And we're called to exercise the gift of hospitality. And we see this here in Manasseh, invited them to spend time with them while they're in Jerusalem in his home. We're told in verses 17 and 18 that Paul was warmly received by the brethren there, as well as James, the half-brother of Jesus who wrote the book of James, and all the elders received him as well. And during the meeting that Paul had with James and the elders, he gave them a report of all that the Lord was doing in his ministry to the Gentiles. You see, it's good for us to share what God is doing, isn't it? It's a very, very healthy thing for a couple of reasons. Number one, it it instills instills a sense of excitement into our hearts, doesn't it? You know, when you share with others what God is doing in your life, you know, it ought to set your heart on fire. God, you're so good. Look what you're doing. We don't have to tell him to look what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. But, you know, we can express ourselves in such a way that, that, God, you're incredible. And not only does it stir a sense of excitement in us, but also brings to us a certain level of encouragement, too, that we can share, we should share what God is doing in our lives. So in verse 19, there's a couple of words that are used here in the King James. It says, he declared particularly, which means he shared in great detail, one item after another, you know, recounting his his missionary journeys. And they took the time to listen to the things that Paul shared and how the Lord was working in Paul and through Paul in all the cities that he visited. And, And I went and looked up how many cities Paul visited on these three missionary journeys. He visited 59 cities. He traveled over 10,000 miles. Talk about a man being used by God, tireless in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he had an awful lot to say, and the people listened attentively to what he shared with them regarding the Lord's work among the Gentiles. And Gentiles, of course, we know those are non-Jews. His focus in speaking to them is so that they would deeply be deeply impacted by the greatness of God's love for the Gentiles and his concern for their souls. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this this morning and how God desired to save the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But keep in mind, I mean, culturally here, it's a very, very hard thing for many of the Jews in the first century to accept that God wanted to save Jews too, or excuse me, Gentiles also. Many believe that the Gentiles were nothing more than fuel for the fires of hell. That was their thinking. And we're going to see later on in future chapters how chaos erupted many, many times when even at the mention that Paul said the name Gentile, the Jews became angered. 
But here in chapter 21, we see that the audience to whom Paul was sharing the details of these three missionary journeys, they glorified God. We see this in verse 20. And that's the way it ought to be, right? Yet many of the Jews didn't even want to hear that word, Gentile. You know, it causes me to think of Jonah. Remember Jonah? God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. He's uh-uh. I hate the Ninevites. Well, God found a way to get Jonah there, didn't he? God made his way. Jonah had a certain sense of nationalism and hatred towards non-Jews, but God saved them in spite of Jonah, and Jonah wasn't happy. Jonah 4 verse 1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. I mean, this is a little bit hard to believe, isn't it? But that's the strong sense that Jonah had of nationalism, the same sense that the Jews had of nationalism, too, toward the Gentiles. And it shouldn't be that way. When we see God's head moving, it's cause to rejoice and bring glory to God. James and the leaders tells us here they were genuinely excited about what God was doing among the Gentiles. But many of their brethren... Well, they weren't so excited. We see here that they ran into a bit of a problem to which they will explain to Paul. Let's again read verses 20 through 22. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. In other words, Paul, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? So they explained to Paul, they shared with him a complication that they faced when they were ministering to the Jews in Jerusalem, and that's the dilemma. They claimed Paul was behind all of this. And that is this. Here's what they said. They wanted him to be aware that there were thousands of Jews that came to Christ in Jerusalem. You see, the gospel had a great impact on them, as it should, as it does. That's why it's important for you and I to share the gospel. Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all that believe, to the Jew first, and then the Greek or the Gentile. So all these Jewish believers that are there in Jerusalem, they, it says they remain zealous of the law of Moses. In other words, they still observed the law of Moses, and the reference here is specifically to the law regarding circumcision, sacrifices, distinction of meats, distinction of days, festivals, and so on. And it may seem unusual to us that they would cling to those rites as Christians. But we need to remember... That's what they were raised on. That's how they cut their spiritual teeth, so to speak, on the law. And also that those rites were appointed by God. They didn't make them up. So they were thus trained in them. Clearly, they believed, they were saved. These are Christians. They believed that Jesus was Messiah. They believed on Jesus for salvation based on simple faith and trust. But they continued also to follow the law of Moses, not to earn their salvation, by following the law of Moses, but as an expression of their love for God 
and not as a means of righteousness. But it was also a way, of, a way that they would maintain a connection with their heritage and with their culture. And I can relate to that. Maybe you can as well. I was raised as a Roman Catholic. And to be honest with you, when I came to Christ, it was kind of hard to let that go. You know, there's certain traditions that were ingrained in me that I thought, well, gee, now do I abandon all these things? Well, God would work that in me. He would work that out of me to trust in him and to trust in him alone. I remember one time when, when we first started talking about communion. And this is very eye-opening for me because one day Jackie said to me, let's have communion. And she got out a piece of bread and a cup of some juice and I said, what? We can't do that. She said, why not? I said, I'm not a priest. She said, well, as a Christian, you are the high priest of our home. See, I was brand new. I was just learning. You know, it's, it's things like that, that that I once clung to. And I'm telling you right now, I'm so glad that I'm free from those kind of things where we can partake of the Lord's table whenever we want. God says, do it as often as you would in remembrance of me. Hallelujah. But that was a very, very important thing for me to understand that that, that was a, a piece of, I say a chain, let's say that, that would hold me back from fully experiencing all that God would have me to do and to trust and to believe and to experience the love and the grace and mercy of my Lord. So traditions, I'm not saying traditions are bad, but there's some traditions that these Jews, they had to let go of in order to fully immerse themselves in the grace of our Lord. They held a very, very high view of the Old Testament in Moses and a high view of the Jewish culture and heritage. And Paul was informed of a rumor that was circulating widely in Jerusalem. We just read this in verse 21. And the rumor was this. When Paul made his missionary journeys, they claimed that he was teaching the Jews that were living in Gentile territories that they should forsake the observing of the law of Moses. Namely, stop circumcising their their sons and abandoning their Jewish customs and heritage. But Paul never said that. Like most rumors, this rumor that was spread about Paul was absolutely false. What Paul did teach regarding Moses and salvation was this. First, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are saved in the exact same way by putting faith and trust in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sin. Second, keeping the law of Moses, namely circumcision and the other things we talked about in Jewish traditions and culture, played no part in a person's salvation. That's what he taught. In fact, he wrote this in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 17 through 19. He said, But as God hath distributed to every man, as the Lord hath called every one, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all churches, is any man called being circumcised, which means a Jew, let him not become uncircumcised. 
And any, is, is any called in uncircumcision, speaking of Gentiles, let him not be circumcised. He said circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but the keeping of the commandments of God. He's saying that's what's important. So very, very clearly, these outward signs don't affect a person's salvation, but the keeping of the word of God. He said that is what matters. Yes, the law of God is good. It's perfect. There's also a commandment that isn't listed in among the ten, but Jesus said this. He said to a religious leader who really didn't know anything but the law, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He's talking about a new birth, not the first birth in the flesh, but a birth in the spirit. Where a person's heart is surrendered to the lordship of Jesus Christ where sins are forgiven and the Holy Spirit of God begins to indwell a person. That's the new birth. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, unless you want to see the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. This is so important for us to understand because there's so many people that have a false conception about the new birth. I did before I became born again. I referred to people like you and me as born-againers. You know, and I, I ran I ran away. Hey, what you believe is your business. What I believe is my business. Now leave me alone. Some of you probably did the same thing. But you know what? I'm so thankful. Those people that I said to leave me alone didn't leave me alone. <laughs> and most importantly, they kept on praying. This guy needs prayer. And they're so right. Because my eyes needed to be open to the truth that there is only one way and Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Not by ritual, not by tradition, not by works, not by this, not by that, not by anything other than faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new birth. Now keep in mind that the epistles that Paul wrote to the churches, church at Corinth, it was written and in circulation before this problem came up in Jerusalem. So what did they do? Well, rather than looking to the Word to find truth in the Word of God, they did what? They allowed rumors to swirl. Do you know the greatest way to silence a rumor about some teaching is to examine the Word of God? We have to. We're called to test everything against God's Word. Don't go on hearsay. Don't go on opinion, yours or anybody else's. You see, opinions don't hold water. Examine the word, look for truth, seek the truth in God's word, and then be convinced in your heart that what you understand to be true is true. And take everything else that doesn't line up with the word of God and say, uh-uh. I don't want it, don't need it, can't have it. So what Paul was teaching in what we just read in 1 Corinthians 7 is that you don't have to become a Gentile culturally when you get saved as a Jew. And you don't have to become a Jew culturally when you get saved as a Gentile. And Paul made it very, very clear to the Gentile believers in Corinth to be sensitive, and it's important for us too, to be sensitive to the consciousness and convictions of their Jewish brethren in the exercise of their Christian liberties so they would not offend the weaker brother. And we have to be careful about that too. You know, we know we're saved by grace, but do we sin so that grace would abound? Paul said, no, God forbid. We live in the grace of God. 
We breathe in the grace of God. We're kept by the grace of God. We're saved by the grace of God. We're going to go to heaven by the grace of God. And within that, you know, the Word of God doesn't tell us every single little thing that we do. But you see, it's what takes place in the heart. We need to understand God's message and understand that it's His Holy Spirit that speaks to us through His Word, but also speaks to our hearts directly. Aren't you so thankful for God's Holy Spirit? I am so grateful because when I mess up, you know, I'm grateful God doesn't come down on me with a hammer, but, you know, His Spirit impacts my heart. It's like, Dan, what are you doing here? Did you, did you hear, can you hear yourself speak? I don't want to hear myself speak sometimes because things that I speak can be very, very hurtful. Or Dan, your thoughts, your motives, your actions. Yes, Lord. Yes. You're right. God's always right. He's always right. <laughs> we can't be like Peter said, not so, Lord. That's a contradiction of terms, isn't it? Lord is master. Not so, Lord. Not so, master. No, we don't, we don't disagree with our master. We agree with him. And I'm grateful that we agree with him. So not only did Paul not demand the Jewish Christians to abandon their heritage, he went further by encouraging the Gentile believers to exercise love, to exercise acceptance in their Christian liberty so not to stumble the Jewish believers. Personally for Paul, he went through great lengths not to portray himself as anti-law. And when you know, we began this third missionary journey, he came to a city where he met Timothy who wanted to join the journey. And if you remember Timothy, his, his father was a Gentile. And his mother was a Jew. And Paul knew if Timothy was to continue on his journey with Timothy not circumcised, it would hurt their effectiveness in preaching to the Jews. And we find this in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Then came he to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus or Timothy, the son of a certain woman who was a Jewish, Jewess, and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. They knew. They knew all about Timothy. They knew that he wasn't a, a pure-blood Jew. And it continues, him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and circumcised him because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek. Why in the world would Paul have circumcised when just a chapter earlier he learned that a group of men came from Jerusalem teaching that in order to be saved, had to keep the law of Moses and be circumcised? And Paul stood against it then. So why the change? Well, we just read, because of the Jews which were in those quarters, for they knew all that his father was a Greek or a Gentile. Now remember Paul's pattern. When Paul would go to various cities, and we've been through this many, many times in the book of Acts, on his missionary journeys, keep in mind there was no Christians in any of those cities. Potentially hostile? For sure. Unwelcoming? Absolutely. Well, what do you do? Where, where would Paul begin as he went into a certain city that he'd never been to before? 
with no other believers? Well, he first went to the synagogue and he preached the gospel. And then he would move out into the community to minister. And he knew that if he brought Timothy into the Jewish synagogue and they knew his reputation of having a Gentile father, they would safely assume then that Timothy wasn't circumcised. And if that was the case, Paul, now remember, Paul, a former Pharisee himself, that those Jewish listeners would not have listened to a single thing that he would have to say or what Silas had to say, or what Timothy would have to say. After all, if they didn't take us seriously enough to take the mark of the of circumcision, then why would we listen to him? So that was a dilemma. Well, Paul anticipated this. He anticipated how it would affect the entire missionary journey as it would become all about, rather than truth, it's all about Timothy. Timothy not being circumcised. So Paul, not wanting to distract from the message of the gospel and the salvation of the people, he had Timothy circumcised. 1 Corinthians 9, 22 and 23, Paul said this, to the weak I became, became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be a partaker thereof with you. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Paul became all things to all men. So Timothy then was circumcised to remove the stumbling block from the Jews they were ministering to. And sometimes Paul's criticized for this. But it was only done in order to reach the people with the gospel. Any sacrifice necessary for the sake of the gospel and the salvation of the people Paul was willing to sacrifice himself and expected the same from those that ministered with him. Well, Paul did all of this with Timothy in order to avoid the very accusations that are made in, verse 20, or in chapter 21 of Acts. And it's really important for us to understand in all of this, Paul was writing to Jews and Gentiles that were already saved. They were born again and saved solely on their faith in Jesus. So none of this has anything to do with how a person gets saved but rather how we choose to express our love and worship of God after we're saved within a given culture. A Christian, well, can be circumcised or uncircumcised, can keep the Sabbath or not keep the Sabbath day. You know, Jesus said, keep holy the Sabbath day. Did he say which day of the week it was? No, he's take one day. He said, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. So we're not bound by these things. But based on our personal convictions, as long as we realize that doing these things or not doing these things don't make me righteous before God, and as long as we don't make them a source of spiritual pride or look down upon those who may approach these things differently than we do, we're never to take these things and make these things a litmus test for judging another person's Christianity, including our own. Paul was very, very clear in Romans 10, verse 4, he said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Christ is the end of the law. Now, in the Old Testament law, it was a signpost. And a signpost, as you know, points to a direction. The Old Testament law was a signpost pointing to the need for a Savior, Messiah. Why? Because we cannot keep the law. 
Any of you break the law this morning? I'm sure I did. The speed limit suggestions are. <laughs> but, you know, it's as small a thing as that is, and we, and we can chuckle about it for sure, and we ought to, because, you know, it just tells us that there's no way in the world we can keep all the law, especially the law of God. A signpost. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. By faith. Not by keeping the law. You know, schoolmasters back in those days are a little different than the schoolmasters today. Schoolmasters, when I was in grade school several years ago, were... were <laughs> maybe 60 years ago. Yeah, more like it. But the schoolmasters were a little bit different. You know, as I mentioned before, I, I was raised as a Roman Catholic. I went to a Catholic grammar school. And we mess up in class, you know, maybe fiddling my papers or something. Guess what happened? A smack on the hand. That doesn't happen anymore. That's considered abuse nowadays. But you know, sometimes, never mind, I won't even go there. <laughs> sometimes we need a good smack, is what I'm going to say. Yes. Amen. 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 Yeah. But we have a gracious Father in heaven. But the law, it says, was our schoolmaster to do what? To point us to Jesus Christ. Yeah. I, I, I've messed up. The law tells me that I've messed up. I can't possibly keep it all. But I know one that has. And that is Jesus Christ. Jesus kept the law perfectly in his flesh. He did that which no mortal could ever do. And you see, there is nothing wrong with the law. The law is perfect. God established it. In fact, Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So the problem is not with the law. It's with us and our failure to keep it. We have no ability on our own to keep the holy law of God. Speaking of every single element of the law, which includes our motives, our intentions, our thoughts, busted. All of us. We can't keep it. And James said this in chapter 2, verse 10. He said, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he's guilty of all of them. In other words, it takes just one offense to disqualify us from heaven. Adam in the creation account, Adam sinned in the garden. And that sin disqualified him from heaven. And because of his sin, we as relations of Adam, we've inherited his sin nature. We've become disqualified because we're sinners. You know, I can think back to 
our children when they were young and our grandchildren nowadays, I mean, when they were little and they begin to have a little stubborn will of their own, it doesn't start that way, but it doesn't take long to get there. You know, the word no, don't do that. Put that down. No. What is that? It's rebellion. Yeah. And I, I didn't teach, Jackie, I didn't teach our children to say no to us. It's just part of their makeup. It's part of our sin nature. Disqualified. One sin. You might think, well, it's a little harsh. It's a little bit extreme. Well, listen to this. God warned Adam. He said this in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou, shalt, thou may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, you shall surely die. Well, Adam was warned. God always warns, doesn't he? And sin was a decision that Adam made. It still holds true. Sin is a decision that we make. We know that we can sin without recognizing it at the time. But I also suggest that much of the opportunities we have to sin or we do sin, it's because of a decision that we make. In every single one of those sins, one of them disqualifies us from heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verse 27, speaking of heaven, says, Nothing impure will ever, enter, will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. God's saying, listen, heaven is a perfect place. Our perfect God dwells there as he dwells in us too. But heaven being a perfect place, it's like I'm not going to let anything or anyone defile that which is perfect. He won't allow us to contaminate his perfect kingdom, and sin does that. But you know, family, I am so grateful that God has provided a solution to the dilemma of sin. I am so grateful. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but of everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him, what? Might be saved. See, that's God's loving heart. He created us for relationship with him. And we know also the scriptures tell us that sin separates us from our God. And I'm so grateful that our, our, our Lord himself, he said, I've got an answer to sin. And the answer to sin is my son. And sometimes people misunderstand Jesus Christ. It happens all the time. That he's a mean, uncaring God. But you know what? He's a loving God. They've made a way for sinners like us to be saved. 
to be forgiven of our sin, not to condemn us. That is not God's heart. He offers salvation to us. He doesn't force it. You know, have you ever tried to twist somebody's arm into trusting Christ? I've tried it. It didn't work very well. But God makes an offer, a free offer, for people like us to make a decision to come to Jesus, where every single element of the law is fulfilled in him. And it's his righteousness that has made me righteous. It's his goodness that has given me any goodness in my life because, you know, the word of God says, there's none good, no, not one. And I believe that with all my heart because the word of God tells me that and I see it in my own life. However, I am perfected in Jesus Christ. So God the Father sent his son Jesus as fulfillment of the law to do what you and I could never do. And that is to keep the law and satisfy all of its requirements. When we're born again, that's why Jesus commanded Nicodemus. He commands us, you must be born again. And when we're born again, we are in Christ and his righteousness. In other words, his perfection, his righteousness becomes my righteousness. And I see myself and say, well, I'm a wicked sinner. Yet I have trusted in Jesus Christ. I am in him so that when the heavenly father looks upon me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of his son. He sees, it, sees me just as if I've never sinned. That's the word justification. And it's an incredible thing. You know, Paul is saying you, you can't do it on your own. You can't be following the law or be saved by trying to follow the law because we can't keep it. But the good news is this family that the work has already been done. It's been done by Jesus Christ on Calvary. And for the believer, this is music to our ears, isn't it? Isn't this a glorious truth? That I can know that I know that I know without any doubt whatsoever that I'm heaven bound. And I don't say that boastfully upon me because I deserve separation from God. I deserve condemnation, but the condemnation and judgment I deserve has been placed on Jesus Christ. And he is my Lord, he's my Savior, and he is my Redeemer. And he has paid the price for my sin with his shed blood. Amen. And it doesn't get any better than that, does it? It can't. So the exhaustion of trying to keep the law and living in the condemnation of it is over. It's done for us as Christians. The perfection of the law has been completed in Jesus Christ. I remember years ago in a place that I worked, there was a guy here, a wonderful Christian. And we used to fellowship all the time on breaks. But he, would, he was telling me a story of a, of a very close friend of his who was also, at one point in his life, a strong believer and follower of Jesus. And then something happened. He latched on to some bad teaching that said you must follow every single element of the Old Testament law. All the law of Moses, including the Mishnah, there are 613 categories or sins or requirements, excuse me, that were laid out. And you know, my friend was telling me that it nearly killed the guy. 
Because he realized day after day, the drudgery, I can't do this, I can't do that, I can't do that, I must do this, you know, on and on and on and on and on. It became a, a treadmill for him, a treadmill that would ultimately make him sick with mental anguish, knowing I can't do this. And all the while, his motive was to please God somehow. He said it was awful. And he tried to talk to his friend and convince him that just simply trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do it, but he's done it. I don't know where it ended up. It was a very, very difficult time. We are justified in Jesus Christ. And my heavenly Father sees me, your heavenly Father sees you as pure righteousness and holy through Jesus. And there's only, it's only through Jesus. It's the only way. If we try to do it on our own, God will see our righteousness. If we try to somehow earn our way into, into the heavenly kingdom, God will look on our righteousness. And you know what our, our righteousness in the Bible is described as? A filthy rag. Can you imagine that? God, I'm going to bring my filthy rag life to you. Is that good enough? No, you need my son. You see, Jesus came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, and he did, and he did it for me and for you. And yet even today, there's so many that strive to keep it as a matter of salvation. There's religions that are built upon that to cause a dependence upon a religious system rather than, than Jesus himself. To work and work and work and work and work to somehow earn your way in. It's never, ever, ever going to happen. It's impossible. Considering not only the, the outward, the things we do outwardly. And we, hey, we can paint a beautiful picture, can't we? And Jesus addressed the Pharisees. He said, outwardly, you're like these whited sepulchers. But inward, you're full of dead men's bones. <coughs> We can look great on the outside, but we know what's on the inside, don't we? And when we consider the inner workings of our, our hearts and minds, we realize that no matter how I portray myself, I'm a sinner. And it will destroy a person that attempts to attain perfection in the flesh. As I was describing to you, my friend's friend, on the day that the law was handed down to Moses, remember this now, in Exodus 32, 28, when he handed down the law of Moses, 3,000 people died. On the day that the Spirit of God descended, 3,000 people got saved. What a difference. What an altar call. You see, legalism in our life, in our church, in our community, it always leads to death because no one can fulfill the righteousness of the law, except one. And that is the Holy One, Jesus Christ. On the other hand, the Spirit of God in your life, in our church and community, always leads to life because of the finished work of Jesus. As I shared, the law of the, the, law of the Lord is perfect. 
converting the soul. The law is good. It establishes guidelines for us, doesn't it? It establishes boundaries for us. It establishes order in our lives. It's designed by God for our benefit and for our protection. Why does the law prohibit certain things for our protection, for our own good? Thou shalt not lie. We lie, there's a consequence, right? The law is good. And Jesus fulfilled every single element, outward and inward. So when taking into account the inner workings of our heart and mind, you know what? We're held to a much higher standard, aren't we? Because the law pretty well addressed the outward. When Jesus preached on a Sermon on the Mount, he took the law and he said, here, apply it to your heart. And when I apply the law to my heart and the inner workings of my heart, I see more clearly every single day. Number one, I can't, I can't keep it all. And number two, how much I need a Savior. How much I need Jesus. And we become Christians not, not based on what we do or don't do, but by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and the forgiveness of our sin. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. This dilemma in Acts chapter 21 that's brewing in Jerusalem, we're going to hear more about it next week. Should the Lord tarry? What Paul did, how he approached it, and how it didn't necessarily make his life easier. It got a little bit more complicated, but he just kept on going. Why? Because he knew that there were souls at stake. He knew that there were people out there that needed to hear the gospel, hear the good news, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need too. You know, so many people in the world, around the world, in our own little worlds, right, don't necessarily see a need. Maybe life seems fine without Jesus. I thought that before. I thought that. But now I realize I, he holds my next breath. He holds my life. He holds my time. He holds me. And now I can safely say with 100% certainty, I can't live apart from him, nor do I want to. I need him. And I love him, and I love him because he loved me first. What a great God. So the big question today is who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? In the things you do or don't do? Or are you trusting in Jesus Christ who went the full distance, full distance all the way to Calvary to pay a price for you and for your life? Why else would he do that? Why, why else would Jesus lay his life down and suffer torment and pain, separation from God? Why would he become our sin if it was for nothing? It's for everything. It's for us. 
So if there's any uncertainty in your life about your salvation, about your eternity, there was a point in my life where I wondered, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And I didn't know, I had no idea. But you know, the good thing is it scared the daylights out of me. I'd go sleep, sleepless at night, wondering, wondering, wondering. And it took many years from that point on, probably another 20 or 25 years to realize that I can know. And I'm grateful to say I do know because of what Christ has done for me in spite of me. He loved me in spite of me. He's forgiven me of all of my sin. There's no other way. Only one has shed perfect blood as a blood sacrifice for me, as payment. So if you would like to receive Jesus today, then please, let's, let's pray right now. There's, there's no point waiting. I know of people that have you know, ministering to them in the hospital or whatever, and they're yeah, just not ready. We're going to get to that later in the book of Acts, too. There's one that says, I'm not ready, and he died, apart from Jesus. And that's a sad thing. Don't let that be you. So please, join me now. And Father, I come to you this morning thanking you that you love me, and you care about me. And that you love me so much that you've gone to prepare a heavenly place for me. I'm grateful, Lord, that you spoke to my heart today. And I realize that I've sinned, that I'm a sinner. And I need you. I need a Savior. I believe that when you, Jesus, went to the cross and laid down your life and poured your blood out, you did it for me that I might be forgiven. And I believe with all my heart that's why you did what you did. So I bring my life to you. I commit my life to you now. And ask you to forgive me of all of my sin and help me to live a new life, not trusting in me, not focusing on my failures, but trusting in you and focusing in on your goodness and your grace. I thank you for loving me and I thank you for saving me. And I'm so grateful that after they placed you in the tomb, you rose again on the third day which shows me that I have eternal life, no longer bound by the grave, but bound for heaven by your Holy Spirit. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.